Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning on April 2nd, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And in last week's podcast on historical and intellectual background to the war in Ukraine, I closed by asking... Posing the question of whether a neither east nor west position, a neither nor position on the war and on the, you know, showdown between Russia and the West is still possible this late in the day. And I said we would be discussing the uh, question in the next podcast, and so we will. This is a question that I have been grappling with, and I do not claim to have an answer but I am going to share with you some of my grappling. But uh, before I do, to sort of frame the question, I am going, if you will forgive me, dear listener, to uh, once again indulge my fetish for dead Englishmen and read a brief quote each from two of my, for better or worse, favorite authors, George Orwell and C.S. Lewis. And I've uh, noted before, particularly in the uh, the podcast we did a couple of years ago about C.S. Lewis's actually very important essay, The Abolition of Man, that um, these two authors you know, sort of paradoxically mirrored each other in a lot of their thinking, despite the fact that, you know, Orwell was a left-wing democratic socialist and uh, Lewis was a uh, conservative Christian moralist. And yet they sort of took different paths to uh, some very similar conclusions. And more than once, you know, as I pointed out in that last podcast a couple of years ago, their um, words mirrored each other's almost verbatim. And this is despite the fact that, uh, you know, again, not only were they on opposite sides of the political divide in their own time, Britain in the 1940s, basically, but Orwell... Uh, <laughs> was was quite critical of Lewis in one of the few things that he wrote about him and uncharacteristically took a rather dishonest swipe at him. So just uh, for a little bit of levity, I'm going to read a little passage from Orwell's column, As I Please, uh, which appeared in the London Tribune in October 1944 in which he uh, criticizes his BBC colleague, C.S. Lewis. At that time, uh, Lewis was doing these kind of like fireside chat type things, you know, on um, pop theology, as it were, for uh, the BBC. And um, Orwell, of course, was doing, you know, helping to produce anti-fascist programming in support of the British war effort for the Beeb. But he writes this little column, very critical of, of, of Lewis, and actually implies that he was a secret fascist sympathizer, which is some bunk <laughs> I'm going to read. He mentions uh, Lewis along with um, Chesterton and certain other um, purveyors of uh, what was called Christian apologetics at that time. And he writes, one reason for the extravagant boosting that these people always get in the press is that their political affiliations are invariably reactionary. Some of them were frank admirers of fascism, as long as it was safe to be so. 
That is why I draw attention to Mr. C.S. Lewis and his chummy little wireless talks, of which no doubt there will be more. They are not really so unpolitical as they are meant to look. Indeed, they are an outflanking movement in the big counterattack against the left. End quote. And again, I really feel that um, Orwell is being uncharacteristically dishonest here because there is absolutely nothing to suggest that C.S. Lewis was ever a fascist sympathizer. His buddy, J.R.R. Tolkien, kind of equivocated on the Spanish War, never in public, but in his personal letters, which were published posthumously. He certainly expresses, uh, you know, opprobrium for um, atrocities committed by the Republican side, but not by the fascist side. But certainly uh, by the time uh, World War II broke out, Lewis and Tolkien alike were absolutely unequivocally behind the British war effort. And Lewis, in essays such as The Abolition of Man, was actually very critical of fascism. So that was a bit of a sleazy little swipe. But um, <clears throat> to move on to the uh, heart of the matter, as it were, I'm going to be uh, first reading a brief passage from George Orwell's 1942 essay, Pacifism and the War. The war, of course, being World War II, which was then underway. Quote, Pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. This is elementary common sense. If you hamper the war effort of one side, you automatically help that of the other. Nor is there any way of remaining outside such a war as the present one. In practice, he that is not with me is against me. The idea that you can somehow remain aloof from and superior to the struggle while living on food which British sailors have to risk their lives to bring you is a bourgeois illusion bred of money and security. Mr. Savage, and here he means Derek Savage, who was a prominent British pacifist and a leader of the Peace Pledge Union, a group that Orwell had briefly supported before the war, but absolutely broke with once the war broke out, <clears throat> to return to the text, Mr. Savage remarks that, quote, according to this type of reasoning, a German or Japanese pacifist would be objectively pro-British, end quote. But of course he would be. That is why pacifist activities are not permitted in those countries. In both of them, the penalty is, or can be, beheading. While both the Germans and the Japanese do all they can to encourage the spread of pacifism in British and American territories. The Germans even run a spurious freedom station, which serves out pacifist propaganda indistinguishable from that of the Peace Pledge Union. They would stimulate pacifism in Russia as well if they could, but in that case, they have tougher babies to deal with. Insofar as it takes any effect at all, pacifist propaganda can only be effective against those countries where a certain amount of freedom of speech is still permitted. In other words, it is helpful to totalitarianism. End quote. Okay, and now I'm going to read a passage from C.S. Lewis in which he makes the identical point in nearly identical language. Very interesting. From a, uh, a 1940 lecture that he gave to a pacifist society at Oxford, 
entitled, Why I Am Not a Pacifist. Okay, he begins by stating uh, that most pacifism is ultimately based on um, the intuition that all killing of human beings is in all circumstances an absolute evil, quote-unquote. And then goes on to write, One attempt to get a pacifist conclusion from this intuition is of a political and calculating kind. If not the greatest evil, war is yet a great evil. Therefore, we should all like to remove it if we can. But every war leads to another war. The removal of war must therefore be attempted. We must increase by propaganda the number of pacifists in each nation until it becomes great enough to deter that nation from going to war. This seems to me wild work. Only liberal societies tolerate pacifists. In the liberal society, the number of pacifists will either be large enough to cripple the state as a belligerent or not. If not, you have done nothing. If it is large enough, then you have handed over the state which does tolerate pacifists to its totalitarian neighbor, who does not. Pacifism of this kind is taking the straight road to a world in which there will be no pacifists, end quote. <laughs> Wittily stated, and obviously the same point that his political nemesis Orwell was making, and, uh, you know, it's an important point. Now, a lot of the other things that Lewis says in this essay can be readily dismissed, particularly, you know, his appeal to authority, render unto Caesar, and all that. that all that stuff means nothing to me. But here, he's making a point that really does need to be grappled with. Now, three countervailing points readily present themselves. One is, uh, you know, he was writing in 1940, when it was uh, very easy to believe that, you know, all war was inevitably between liberal states, as he puts it, and totalitarian ones. Since then, we have certainly seen that things are not always that simple. For instance, in Vietnam, you had two authoritarian regimes, one being backed by totalitarian Soviet Union and China, and the other being backed by liberal France and the United States. And ultimately, it was necessary to root for the prior, that of Ho Chi Minh, being backed by you know, totalitarian USSR and China, because it was fighting against neo-colonial imperial powers who were uh, carrying out a genocidal and ecocidal war on their territory, on Vietnam's territory. So it's important that we don't have any illusions about, you know, the niceties of these so-called liberal governments of the West. A second point is that, you know, liberal societies, as he's using the term liberal, come to mirror totalitarian ones in opposing them a tendency that we saw both in World War II and in the subsequent Cold War. In fighting the Axis, the United States began imperfectly and nowhere near equivalently, but horrifically enough to mirror the Axis in the forcible mass detention of the Japanese Americans. McCarthyism was similarly at least a distant echo of the Stalin purge trials 20 years earlier. And uh, finally, a third point is that um, in 1940, the nuclear threat did not exist. 
And that changes everything and gives far more weight to the imperative of avoiding war, particularly avoiding war between nuclear armed powers, such as that which appears to be looming at the moment. And what Lewis was describing in this, uh, you know, tendency which he dismissed as wild work, precisely, you know, the politics of, for instance, the War Resisters League, which is a group that I have intermittently worked with over the years to support anti-war and anti-militarist dissidents from Colombia to the former Yugoslavia to Syria and Iraq. And War Resisters League does really uh, vital work along those lines. I've also had my criticisms of them over the years for being too tolerant of those sectors of the anti-war left who think that um, opposing Western imperialism means rallying around the dictators who are oppressing and persecuting anti-war and anti-militarist dissidents in places like Russia or Serbia or Iraq, looking back over the past generation and change since the end of the Cold War, and even during the Cold War before that. But their political program and that of War Resisters International, of which they are a part, is precisely as Lewis describes. This vision of ultimately building up a you know critical mass of war resistors in every country in the world so that waging war ultimately becomes impossible. And I've dedicated a lot of my life to supporting this kind of work. So I've always held, despite my criticisms, with the political strategy that Lewis dismisses as wild work, but with an important caveat that it was and is absolutely necessary to support the anti-war dissidents and anti-regime forces, left-wing progressive anti-regime forces in the USSR in its final years when I was just getting politically active, or in the Serbia of Slobodan Milosevic, Saddam's Iraq, Assad's Syria, or Putin's Russia, rather than, as all too many anti-war types in the West have done, rallying around the despots and the rival war criminals to those in power in the West. And that this work, supporting the anti-war dissidents and progressive anti-regime forces under the official enemy states of Western imperialism, this work has to be central to anti-war organizing in the West, and that we have to build solidarity from below between anti-war and anti-militarist forces within the contending nation-states and superpowers. And that failing to do so, particularly at a moment like this, loans itself to a you know paradoxical pro-war pseudo-pacifist position that abets aggressive war. And from the late 1980s through the uh, mid-1990s, precisely the period of the Cold War endgame, I was involved in a group called Neither East Nor West, which came together precisely to loan support for um, draft resistors, pacifists, anti-militarists, anti-nuclear activists, etc. in the East Bloc in the Soviet Union and the states of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, a little brief historical background 
This group actually has its origins in the uh, early 1980s from a, a dissident group which began to emerge in then Soviet Russia with the intentionally innocuous name of the Trust Group, initially the Moscow Trust Group, that later trust groups emerged in Leningrad and other cities. And they took this name to try to give, you know, an unthreatening cover to their activism against Soviet nuclear stockpiling and against conscription for the war in Afghanistan, the Russian war in Afghanistan at that time, and portraying it as, you know, we're just trying to, you know, build trust with the, uh, you know, anti-war forces in the West and build trust with the West generally, which sort of reflected official Soviet rhetoric at the time, appealing to Western peaceniks. So it was more difficult for, uh, you know, them to come under persecution when they adopted this kind of rhetoric. But nonetheless, of course, some of them did come under persecution. Some of them were imprisoned and interned in psychiatric hospitals and so on. And a group came together here in New York City called the New York Trust Group to sort of serve as a sibling organization for the Moscow Trust Group and to raise a voice in their support when their leaders were persecuted and succeeded through pickets outside the Soviet consulate in Manhattan and so on in getting some of the uh, Moscow Trust Group leaders released after they were detained. At a time when, you know, Soviet authorities were very sensitive to, uh, particularly to left-wing anti-war opinion in the West for their own cynical reasons, but it sort of um, <clears throat> gave the New York Trust Group an angle to, um, to exploit. And similarly, they got the Moscow Trust Group to, uh, you know, issue statements of solidarity at protests that were held in Washington, D.C. against U.S. intervention in Central America linking it to um, opposing Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, that kind of work. And uh, there was a particularly inspiring episode in um, August of 1986, in the aftermath of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Two of the key figures in the New York Trust Group, two very important figures in my life. One, uh, Bob McGlynn, one of my early political mentors and a good buddy of many years, who unfortunately died a few years ago. And um, Anne-Marie Hendrickson, with whom I uh, co-produced a radio show on WBAI radio here in New York City for like 20 years, and is still a producer at WBAI today. Uh, the two of them flew to Moscow in August 1986 with a banner smuggled in their luggage, reading, No more Hiroshima's, no more Chernobyl's peace and environmental safety for all, with a bunch of leaflets in Russian. I believe the banner was in both English and Russian, but a bunch of leaflets in Russian, warning of, uh, you know, the dangers of atomic radiation. And immediately upon landing in Moscow, they met with some uh, members of the Moscow Trust Group, and they went to Gorky Park, unfurled the banner, started distributing the leaflets, and of course, in like, you know, five minutes, <laughs> were arrested by the KGB. And uh, Bob and uh, Anne-Marie were deported. They were put on a plane back to the United States. And uh, of course, the slogan on their banner, no more Hiroshima's, no more Chernobyl's, was meant to, you know, emphasize their neither East nor West position. 
you know, this direct action was uh, in response to the Chernobyl accident, but it was timed for what would have been the 41st anniversary, if my math is right, of the bombing of Hiroshima, August 1986. And back in New York, they um, transformed the New York Trust Group into neither East nor West, which kind of uh, broadened the scope of their work to, uh, you know, build solidarity with anti-war, anti-militarist, anti-nuclear activists, not only in the Soviet Union, but throughout the Warsaw Pact and other nations of the East, such as Yugoslavia, which was, you know, communist, quote unquote, but not aligned with Moscow. So uh, it was at that time that um, I got involved. I was just getting to know Bob and Anne-Marie and the gang. Just as the group was expanding into neither East nor West, I, I became involved. And, uh, you know, we uh, protested at the um, Soviet and Polish, etc., you know, consulates here in Manhattan on behalf of imprisoned activists. And significantly, we got activists in Moscow and Minsk and Warsaw to protest on behalf, for instance, of um, Kenny Tolia, one of the um, anarchist defendants of the uh, Tompkins Square uprising here on the Lower East Side during that same period, who was framed on riot charges related to the, you know, anti-gentrification uprising that was going on here on the Lower East Side at that period, and actually did eight months in prison in Rikers Island. And then after the Soviet collapse, we um, remained active for quite a few years, particularly doing support, and here in... um, direct cooperation with members of War Resisters League for anti-war dissidents in the former Yugoslavia and in all of the republics of the former Yugoslavia, particularly, you know, the two great antagonists, Croatia and Serbia, both of them, the anti-war and anti-conscription and pro-coexistence dissident activists, both in the ultranationalist Croatia of Franjo Tudjman and the ultranationalist Serbia of Slobodan Milosevic, the prior being backed by the West and the latter being backed by Russia. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, Bob and Anne-Marie, the two principal founders of neither East nor West, took the name of the organization from an essay written in 1947, back at the very dawn of the Cold War, by Marie-Louise Berneri, the legendary World War II era anarchist, anti-war militant, who very interestingly was the daughter, she was Italian by birth, but um, exiled from Mussolini's Italy to Britain, and was the daughter of Camillo Berneri, famous Italian anti-fascist militant. So uh, Marie Louise was actually a second generation of anarchist. And um, Camillo Berneri went to Spain in 1936 with the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War and the Spanish Revolution to fight in the anarchist militias, then defending Catalonia and Barcelona from the fascist advance of the forces of Francisco Franco. And then the following year, 1937, particularly that critical month of May 1937, when at the behest of Joseph Stalin, the supposedly, you know, left-wing, anti-fascist Republican government of the Popular Front in Madrid moved to put down the anarchists who had really seized power 
in Barcelona, sparking the famous, uh, you know, um, civil war within the civil war. And during this episode, Camilo Berneri was seemingly assassinated by a deaf squad organized by the Popular Front government. Not even killed in the street fighting, but dragged from his apartment in the night in a raid by some unaccountable, you know, paramilitary forces. So his daughter, Marie-Louise Berneri, was of course deeply affected by this and became intransigently anti-Soviet, anti-Stalin, even after June 1941, when Nazi Germany broke the Hitler-Stalin pact, invaded the Soviet Union, and precipitated Stalin's joining the war on the side of the West. So uh, Marie-Louise Berneri was staking out a very, very lonely position. Nearly the entire left-wing forces all around the world supported the war effort during this period. She was among those few lonely anarchists and pacifists who did not, who refused to do so, who somehow walked that fine line of being intransigently anti-fascist while also opposing Churchill, FDR, and Stalin. And uh, throughout the war, she was producing in London a newsletter entitled War Commentary for Anarchism, intransigently opposed to uh, all of the warring parties and calling out the Axis and the Allies alike on their war crimes and atrocities, of which there were plenty to go around. In 1950, this newsletter would be transformed into Freedom Magazine, the foremost anarchist publication in the United Kingdom, which still exists today. I'm not sure if they're still actually putting out a, um, a print edition, but they still got a website. And they've been actually running some very, very good material about the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Check them out online at um, freedomnews.org.uk. And in 1988, Freedom Press released a, uh, a volume of uh, the selected writings of Marie-Louise Berneri from this period. I should note that uh, she died very tragically at um, the age of 30 in 1949, so just after the period we're discussing. But the volume that uh, Freedom Press put out with her um, collected essays was entitled Neither East Nor West. After the final essay in the book, and perhaps the final thing she wrote, in December 1947, written in response to uh, critical letters that she was getting from readers who were accusing her of capitalist propaganda and warmongering for her criticisms of the Stalin regime and Soviet Russia. I'm going to read a brief passage. Quote, Many socialists and pacifists in the pre-war years looked with disapproval upon violent denunciations of Hitler's regime because they saw in it a furthering of war. This fear of war led them to support non-intervention in Spain and the Munich Pact. We now have the appeasers of Russia. They are so hypnotized by the vision of atomic war that they are prepared to turn a blind eye on crimes committed under their very noses. We wholly disagree with this attitude. 
we do not think that war can be avoided by a policy which entails the suppression of facts. We hold this view for ethical reasons, but also for practical ones. Ethical, because we do not believe in suppressing truth to suit a certain policy. This would be propaganda in the pejorative sense. We are not interested in propaganda, quote-unquote. We denounced the Russian regime during the war at a time when everybody was praising Stalin, from Mr. Churchill downwards. If we were concerned in furthering capitalist propaganda, quote-unquote, we would not have chosen to say unpopular truths all these years. We cannot alter our views about Russia simply because, for imperialist reasons, American and British spokesmen now denounce Russian totalitarianism. We know that their indignation is hypocritical and that they may become friendly to Russia again if it suits their interests. But for all that, are we to stifle our own indignation? The practical reasons are equally important. We do not believe that a policy of appeasement toward Stalin will prevent war any more than the policy of appeasement towards Hitler stopped the last one. The only way to prevent wars is to abolish the causes of wars. Wars are inherent in totalitarian regimes, and therefore we denounce totalitarianism wherever we find it. We have denounced it in America, in India, in Greece and Palestine. We have always advocated complete independence for British colonies. We have demanded the abolition of the armed forces. We have fought for the defense of civil liberties with all the strength at our command. We hate war and have consistently fought against it. And for that reason, we fight state oppression wherever it occurs. The idealistic words of Marie-Louise Berneri from her 1947 essay, Neither East Nor West. So this is very much the, uh, the vision that animated our efforts in the activist group, Neither East Nor West, during the period of the uh, Cold War endgame. And, you know, ambitiously seeking, or, you know, if not <laughs> seeking, at least dreaming of, you know, immobilizing the war machines of the contending empires across the Cold War divide. And to a certain extent, you know, such efforts succeeded. The U.S. and the Soviet Union did not actually go to war with each other during the Cold War. It never reached its much-feared climax. And as I've noted in previous podcasts on Ukraine, the vision of a neutral and demilitarized post-Cold War Eastern Europe did achieve some victories, such as Ukraine itself declaring its neutrality after independence from the Soviet Union. But what we are witnessing now is exactly what such a strategy or vision was aimed at avoiding. And I have to honestly ask myself if a neither East nor West anti-war position is no longer tenable, if we have reached the point at which, in Orwell's words, there is no real way of remaining outside a war such as the present one. I honestly don't know. Today, 
later today, April 2nd, Saturday, I'm going to be going to a rally outside the United Nations up at Daghammer Skull Plaza, 6.30 p.m., 47th Street and 1st Avenue, called by uh, the group Razom for Ukraine. Razom being the word for together in the Ukrainian language, a group which is based in my neighborhood in the East Village in the Little Ukraine section. It's got its offices over on um, 2nd Avenue and 9th Street. And uh, their rally that I'm going to be attending tomorrow is against Putin's war, but unequivocally in support of the Ukrainian war effort. So I guess in some ways I'm attending what could be seen as a pro-war rally. Um, I have to say that, you know, I don't entirely go along with all of their demands. They're calling for a no-fly zone for Ukraine. I don't know about that. But that demand is not a deal-breaker for me attending their rally. And um, this I do know. I will deny nobody the right to self-defense. I will not preach pacifism to those who are getting bombs rained down on them, which is ugly, privileged bullshit of the lowest order. And just as whatever criticism we may have had back in the day to the authoritarian regime of Ho Chi Minh, it was necessary to support his forces in Vietnam. So today, whatever criticisms I may have of the neoliberal government of Vladimir Zelensky, it is necessary to support his forces in Ukraine. And uh, I note that um, there are also, in fact, anarchist militias that have formed in Ukraine to resist the Russians. But I imagine that they are at least de facto aligned with the government forces, just as the anarchists in Spain were at least briefly allied with the Republican forces against the fascists. So, I don't know. Like I say, there's a lot that I'm grappling with here, too. But of this much, I am certain. And here's where, you know, I may be getting into even more unpopular territory. (laughs) That just as it's necessary to support the Ukrainian resistance, it's necessary to support the Russian anti-war protesters. Upwards of 8,000 have now been arrested across Russia from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok at risk of lengthy prison terms under this new draconian law which Putin has imposed, imposing 15 years in the, in the slammer for dissenting against the war. And while I am absolutely rooting for the Ukrainians on the battlefield, I also think that they ultimately cannot prevail unless Putin is seriously weakened or, knock on wood, overthrown, and that that necessarily implies support for the Russians who oppose him. And it's interesting that the opposition to this position is coming from two ostensibly opposed blocs. Going to talk about the first one first. On one hand, you've got the, uh, there's two different elements to this block, but I'm going to lump them together because they're de facto allied, although they would also appear to be ostensible political enemies, but they really aren't anymore. Uh, the tankies, that is to say, the pro-Putin pseudo-left, and the uh, the paleocons, the paleoconservative uh, elements of, uh, of the, you know, the, the political right in this country, who are nostalgic for isolationism 
and support, quote-unquote, stability under authoritarian regimes. And the reason I'm, I'm lumping both of them together is because they've, in fact, lumped themselves together. They've, they've formed a, um, a unified bloc. They really have at this point. It's a case of so-called red-brown politics. By way of example, just um, a couple of days ago, there was a uh, piece prominently featured on the uh, odious website Gray Zone, <clears throat> produced by the odious Max Blumenthal, in which um, his odious comrade Aaron Mate, both supposedly figures of the <clears throat> left, quote-unquote, in which they give a um, marshmallow soft interview to... Um, retired senior U.S. diplomat Chas Freeman, foremost voice of Beltway paleoconservatism, who argues that far from intentionally targeting civilians, that the Russians have been, quote-unquote, holding back. <laughs> Such a perverse thing to say amid the destruction of Mariupol. I mean, it just boggles the mind. All right, so at this point, you know, the, uh, the tankies and the paleocons have formed a, um, a unified bloc. And all of the, uh, you know, the websites of all of the major exponents of the tanky pseudo-left are all pretty much saying the same thing. The International Action Center and the United National Anti-War Coalition are not demanding Russian troops out of Ukraine. UNAC says, the United National Anti-War Coalition, quote, no U.S. slash NATO war in Ukraine, end quote. And they are concerned not with the invasion of Ukraine, but with, quote, war threats on Russia, end quote. The International Action Center headlines, quote, stop the war on Russia, unquote, of which there actually is not any war on Russia. So they're opposing a complete hallucination and failing to oppose the actual war, which is Russia's war on Ukraine. So this, no matter how they may try to mince the matter or equivocate, is support for a war of aggression. It is a pro-war position disguised as an anti-war position. And, you know, this so-called tankyism, because it is going unopposed on the anti-war left, is becoming the, you know, dominant position. It's becoming the consensus position. I was extremely alarmed to see posted on Facebook a couple of days ago a photo which was taken of the signboard on the sidewalk outside of Bound Together Books, the venerable anarchist bookstore on Haight Street in San Francisco, where somebody wrote, on the chalkboard for the passing pedestrians to see, quote, stop the U.S. proxy war against Russia, abolish NATO, neutrality for Ukraine, independence for Donbass region, U.S. out of Europe, end quote. Now, neutrality for Ukraine and U.S. out of Europe are positions that I've supported all of these years. But, you know, I recognize that it was the threat of Russian aggression, and now finally, not the threat, but actual Russian aggression, which has made neutrality for Ukraine an untenable position. And the rest of this is just sheer bunk. It's just sheer war propaganda. U.S. proxy war against Russia? Russia is not the country which is being attacked here. And the Ukrainians are fighting in their own national interests. 
not acting as U.S. proxies. And independence for Donbass region, the little fascistic ethno-supremacist militarized enclaves that Russian-backed separatists and probably actual Russian forces have carved out of Ukrainian territory. Unbelievable. Now, um, in the back and forth, which went on in the comments after this uh, photo was posted, this extremely maddening and demoralizing photo was posted, it became uh, clear that um, apparently this, this position is not the consensus of the Bound Together Collective, thank goodness, but was apparently the work of one volunteer acting unilaterally. So hopefully a corrective action is going to be taken by the Bound Together Bookstore Collective. But uh, in my own comments, I um, posed alternative slogans that we anarchists at this moment should be, you know, putting on the signboards outside our bookstores and so on. Stop the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. Down with the dictator Putin. Self-determination for Ukraine. Free Crimea from Russian occupation. Support the Ukrainian resistance and Russian anti-war protesters. And on that whole question of supporting Russian anti-war protesters, <clears throat> okay, I said that on one hand, you've got um, the tankies and paleocons who, far from supporting the Russian anti-war protesters, are supporting goddamn Putin. Well, on the other hand, the opposition to that position, as a position of support for uh, Russian anti-war protesters, is coming from jingos, whether of, uh, you know, the U.S. or Ukrainian variety who really are engaging in Russophobia, a word which I hesitate to use because it has come under such abuse and has been, you know, employed cynically to tar any opposition to Putin and his war crimes. But nonetheless, there does seem to be a tendency, which I suppose is inevitable in an atmosphere like this, but nonetheless is to be opposed of, uh, you know, people who hate Russians just because they're Russians. And uh, this was sort of crystallized by a uh, recent controversy here in New York City, where um, some longtime friends and comrades of mine, veterans of the, you know, radical art scene on the Lower East Side, were in touch with a group of anti-war artists in Moscow and decided to organize a joint exhibition with them of art on an anti-war theme which would be, you know, linked by uh, Zoom at a gallery here in New York and a, uh, and a gallery in Moscow. And it was going to be um, in part sponsored by um, <clears throat> the School of Visual Arts here in New York City, which ultimately backed out of the event in the face of criticism. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into too much of the details. The promoters of the event made some tactical errors, as they will now admit, in terms of their presentation in the publicity. But nonetheless, some of the criticism smacks a little bit of the, uh, you know, the notion that no Russians should be given a voice at all. I'm going to read from a uh, brief account of this affair, which was written up on the... Uh, New York art scene website, hyperallergic.com. SVA Galleries withdraws from show accused of exploiting Ukrainian pain. After facing criticism, SVA Galleries, a trio of Manhattan art galleries, 
that belongs to the School of Visual Arts, SVA, has withdrawn from an exhibition that claimed to be in solidarity with Ukrainians. The show addressed the plight of Russian artists facing persecution, curated by the Moscow-based Russian artist and illustrator, Natasha Konyovoka. The exhibition, entitled Perevorat, or Revolution Illustrated, was scheduled to be held in early April at multiple locations worldwide, including a space in Moscow and SVA's Flatiron Gallery in Midtown Manhattan. The announcement on social media prompted furious reactions in the comment section of the post. One comment asked, quote, Why are you exploiting Ukrainian pain to promote Russian voices? End quote. Well, I respond that some Russian voices need to be promoted now. And the fact that, you know, in the current ultra-repressive atmosphere in Russia, these artists actually have dared to organize a show in Moscow under the name Paravorat, or Revolution, clearly implying a revolution against Putin, indicates that they are precisely the kind of voices, the kind of Russian voices, that we need to be supporting and amplifying. And certainly a paravorat or revolution against Putin is exactly what is needed now. And I have been led to understand that while the, uh, the exhibition has been canceled here in New York City, it is in fact going ahead in Moscow and at an art gallery in Easton, Pennsylvania, of all places. And some of the New York artists are actually going to go, be going out to Easton, Pennsylvania for the event there on April 9th. So I'm glad that this event is going ahead in some form. And apparently I've also been led to understand that um, some Ukrainian artists in besieged Kiev have also been brought on board. So whatever early tactical errors the organizers of this event may have committed, this is precisely the kind of work that needs to be done at this moment. And by way of analogy, I am going to, uh, you know, return to uh, what I've been saying on this podcast about Hong Kong over the whole period that the, uh, the protests there have been going on and followed by the totalizing wave of repression that we've seen over the past year. I support the protesters unequivocally. But I've also been alarmed at the anti-mainlander sentiment that has taken hold among many of them and their tendency to look to the United States and British imperialism for succor rather than attempting to build solidarity with protesters in mainland China who do actually exist and ultimately I really don't think that the liberation of Hong Kongers or Tibetans or Uyghurs or Southern Mongolians will be possible without building solidarity against the Beijing dictatorship with Han Chinese. And similarly, I do not think that Ukraine's survival will be possible in the long run or that there could be any retreat from the current escalation toward nuclear war without vigorous solidarity on the part of those who oppose Putin's aggression all around the world with anti-war and anti-regime forces within Russia. Watch this podcast. We'll have more to say about this in the weeks to come. 
This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. We ask a minimum of just $1 per podcast, and we really do need your support. Join The Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.